everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, welcome to Ideology, McMurray, uh, here with Drew Stedman. And uh, today we are going to just jump right in to a topic that we've covered in the past, but we're going to dive in a little bit more specifically today uh, around the idea of the church gathered and the admonitions in the scriptures to continue meeting together. I think certainly an important topic today in uh, our modern atomized society that is just very granular, hyper-individualized, as we've talked about in the past. And, and I think the trend over the past several years, certainly with COVID, with all the restrictions and the the trends nationally that we're seeing and, and even internationally with church attendance and, and just the implications that COVID has had for that, but even the underlying kind of ideological currents that are uh, pulling against the tradition of gathering in in the, the historical way that it's been expressed. And so, Drew, why don't you uh, just jump right in? So I see this pastorally in a couple different places. Uh, most obviously are people who avoid any tie to any particular church, and so they might bounce around. Um, they might have places where they feel connected or they feel like are environments to recharge their spiritual life, but they don't really have a tight community that they walk with in any way. Um, that's probably the most prominent. Um, I also see, though, a more common trend are people that are connected to, to a church, but they're not that engaged. You know, it's and both this would be whatever that church does. Um, it, you know, if it's uh, anything from small groups to if you're in a denomination that does Sunday school to um, you know whatever, where people are just loosely connected or shy away from those types of things, then attend less frequently on a Sunday where. It's not that any one of those is my big issue as much as it is the whole picture is people are less engaged, less involved, and more likely to do other things than to press into the habits of their particular community. And that's a word I'm going to keep coming back to is habits, because I think that's actually an important part of what we get in community is communities actually form our habits. They form the ways that, that we live. And so what concerns me is people are disengaging, whether that's actually disengaging formally, or they are practically disengaging. They're disengaging from their Christian community, which means that community is no longer shaping their habits in the same way that it that it used to. The last scenario I run into are people who are part of a community and are actually involved, but they push back on that community's habits. And so, you know, they are being formed, but there's kind of this idea that if it's not something that's a direct command of scripture, that I don't need to worry about doing it. And so a lot of energy gets spent saying, well, why should I? So an example would be, like I'll think of our church tradition, fasting. You know, people might say, well, the Bible doesn't tell us we have to fast, and so why would I do that, even though somebody might be a part of a community that fasts? Or, you know, maybe somebody's part of a church community that prays the um, daily office, um, you know, and they, they go through the prayers, and that's part of what that community does. But it's like, well, there's nowhere in the Bible that tells me I have to do that, so why would I do it? So we're kind of getting into somebody who is an active member of a community, but they're not really embracing the habits of that community. So overall, my perspective is that it's incredibly important for us that we are deeply ingrained in Christian community and that within that community, we are actively pursuing lifestyle habits and behaviors together, and we're allowing together our our environment to be a part of forming us and shaping us. 
So obviously we've talked about this before just very broadly on how, and I, you know, you can go back to our very first episode that you are being shaped by your surrounding environment. And we're not going to ever be able to control whether or not our environment is shaping us. So instead, what we have to focus on is making sure we're in the right environment so that we're being shaped in the right way. And this formula that I've used is you are shaped by your social environment. And if you live in modern America, your social environment is becoming increasingly non-Christian. So if you connect those dots, what that tells you is that if you are not actively involved in churches that have you know, strong formative power in the context of community, then it's probably just a matter of time until the habits and values of secularism are going to shape you. And for those who maybe you were so deeply formed in earlier parts of your life as part of Christian community, maybe that won't be the case fully for you, but I'd be willing to wager that for your children, um, that would be the reality for them uh, because they won't have that same level of formation. I remember years ago, I was, uh, I think I was doing college ministry at the time, and a friend of mine was critiquing the church I was part of, you know, about how so many of the people talk the same. And, you know, they were, they were viewing that as a negative thing. It was negative that we had a lot of shared vocabulary. And now I look at that as like, wow, that's awesome. I mean, I think that should be something that churches should wear as a badge of honor. If you have formative power that actually is changing vocabulary, and I'm not talking about being insular. I'm not talking about being standoffish as though elitism or something like that. But I'm talking about formative power that actually does change the way that we speak because our community is strong enough that it actually is forming us. And that's reflected in certain ways that we live. Yeah, this this topic, I've actually been thinking a lot about spiritual formation over the past couple of years. And in the line of work that I do with the discipleship school and having had hundreds of people come through the schools now over the past 10 years, and in watching people after this this process of of more focused spiritual formation, some people continue to thrive and and grow in the Lord, and then others, you know, maybe plateau. Others fully walk away from the faith, and it just, I think it's it's caused me in the past several years to to ask the question of longevity and how do how do people make it? Like how do people continue to grow in God over a lifetime? And especially again, just in against the backdrop of what's happening around us in, in our culture. And uh, I've been so grateful for the work of Mark Sayers and John Tyson and John Mark Comer and them drawing on the work of Dallas Willard and Richard Foster and others. And this this notion of not just discipleship, uh, these these terms are interchangeable, but but spiritual formation actually being conformed into the image of Jesus in a very intentional way over a lifetime, not just belief and you know and, and participation in a church, but but conformity in an active way. You know, there are several components that they they draw out of the scriptures that are prerequisite for transformation, for ongoing transformation. And uh, Dallas Willard had his VIM model, vision, intention, means, which we won't go into in this podcast. Maybe that'll be a podcast for another time. But uh, part of the means to sustain growth is biblical community. Uh, another part of the means, and this will tee up where you're, uh, some of where you're going through, is, is the, the spiritual disciplines uh, active in a person's life over a lifetime. But that uh, that biblical community being a an absolute prerequisite for growth, and not just a you know not just the cafeteria approach like you're talking about, Drew, but a deep commitment and participation actively uh, in among the people of God in a local context is absolutely fundamental to ongoing 
uh, formation into the image of Jesus. And there's actually, there's so much secular research. It's actually kind of fun to study this and find whether it's the world of psychology or education or business. Uh, really, it's the same components in terms of how do people change and sustain that change, that growth. And the the people that we are with, obviously, is one of the most formative parts of that equation. But there's something uh, even even more potent when it comes to the church, the people of God, because the Spirit indwells the church. And, and don't want to, again, get into too many rabbit holes here. But just to affirm, yes, I love where you're going through it, in the process of making disciples, being disciples, and the, the process of change sustained over a lifetime, this participation in and actively uh, in, within the local church. Yes, that combination is so powerful. It's community and disciplines together, and that's the intersection here that's going to lead to lasting transformation. I'm going to reference several books today. Um, First, Alan Kreider, Patient Ferment of the Early Church. I've talked about this book before, but I finally got around to reading it. Um, Something that he highlights quite a bit throughout his book is this concept of habitus, and this describes patterns of behavior that are reflexive. Like you never actually analyze where this pattern came from because it's so deeply ingrained. It's just kind of the way that you are. And he is a, he's studying the early church and he's describing how patient, and that's the real theme of his book, is that the early church was patient with new believers to form them into the Christian habitus. And what they were having to do is they had these reflexes that they inherited from their pagan upbringing And what they were needing is they were actually needing to be patiently formed in the habits of an entirely new community and the way that that new community lived. And that was a very communal process that was embodied. It was thorough. It involved discipline. So there was all these different layers to it that led to them actually being reformed. So on the one hand, and this actually was a bit of a shift, the church actually believed that people could change. And if you look at some of the Greek philosophers, they kind of thought your character was fixed. But the Christians had the audacity to believe that you could change. But I believe they were a lot more sober-minded on the reality of what change actually requires and what it looks like. Um, Separately, I've referenced this quote before that we like to talk about changing the world, but uh, sociologically, we're actually a lot more likely to be changed by the world. And I think that would be affirmed in this whole concept that we have to be aware that we're probably more likely to allow the world to change us unless we are willing to press into the community and the habits necessary to sustain um, some form of lasting change. Um, so Kreider, a lot of what he's doing is he's he's comparing the early church to modern seeker-sensitive movements or the emergent movement, these other different groups that are seeking to remove whatever they can that does distinctly form people as Christians so that, that instead we can meet with the world. And there's, you know, there's evangelistic value to removing barriers, so I, I think you could take that thought too far. But Thought being like we shouldn't be ashamed of people when they want to follow Christ, recognizing that's going to require them to be in a community and formed by that community, not just an issue of occasionally getting them to show up at church because we've removed enough cultural barriers to where they feel comfortable doing so. Sorry, another tangent here for a moment, but I was listening to a different podcast this morning, uh, the Bama Discipleship Podcast with Marty Solomon, and he was talking about the tamarisk tree. I just thought this was so cool. I want to insert this as another plug for this book, though I haven't read it yet, but this concept, the patient ferment. And uh, the tamarisk tree pops up every once in a while uh, in the scriptures a couple times. And uh, and I do have to admit on the front end here, I was doing laundry while listening to this, so I was listening with half an ear. But the whole point was that the tamarisk tree takes 80 years to come to full 
maturity. So if you plant a tamarisk tree, you're not planting it for yourself and you're not even planting it for your children. You're planting it for your grandchildren. I can't remember which episode it was when Abraham came back to the promised land, but he planted a tamarisk tree. And the significance of that was he was basically stating, we aren't going anywhere. Um, He had left the promised land, you know, once or twice. And he was basically saying, we're here to stay. And the question in the podcast that Marty Solomon posed is, what are you doing today to prepare for your grandchildren uh, flourishing? What are you doing today? What are you sowing into? And to think, you know, we just don't think with that kind of patience. We don't think with that kind of foresight much of the time. But the disciplines we give ourselves to, the the processes and the people we give ourselves to are actually setting up not just our own lives for flourishing, but generations to come. That's awesome. So we can take this thought and then let's add in James K.A. Smith, whose book, Desiring the Kingdom, it's a pretty well-known book and it's part of a larger series. I've just read the first one. His big idea is that all of life is filled with liturgy. Um, the book's, you know, it's, I don't know, decade, two decades old. So he talks about a shopping mall. So for us, I don't know what that equivalent, like Amazon maybe, but he describes going to a shopping mall and he said, it's actually a liturgical process. Like you see these image of beautiful people on the wall and you show up and you know, it's this this mirror that's being held to you of I'm not like them, but I could become like them if I'm willing to purchase something. So like there's this whole process that is that is training us and teaching us of what a good life is and how you can achieve the good life. And he he goes on to describe situations like that that we might be tempted to describe as neutral. And they're not really spiritual, nor are they bad. They're just normal everyday life. And his point is that that's actually not true. They're not, there is no such thing as that. There are Everything we're doing is training us, teaching us, informing us. And so he's going to use that to advocate for liturgy in the church. And, uh, you know, he, he makes some good points. I would probably take that in a slightly different direction. More than just what does the liturgy of the church look like, it's asking a broader question about the culture that we're forming in the church. That does include our, our formal liturgy, but also includes a whole host of other factors. How are we creating cultures that shape us because we live with the awareness that all of life is formative in, in one way or the other? Andy Crouch, his book, Culture Making, again, a pretty well-known book. His, his big thesis is that the only way to change a culture is to create more of it. And he has this brilliant story. He describes his children, how they hated chili. And that was like the family recipe that he and his wife made was chili and had been passed down for generations. And he goes on to say that his kids don't realize it yet, but one day they will repeat the same ritual with their children where eventually they're going to get over the fact that they hate chili. They're going to learn how to like it because that's just what's being fed. They're going to learn that this is part of who they are as a family, and they will repeat the process for a future generation. And so his thought is like, you can criticize all you want. His kids were criticizing what they don't like, but criticizing ultimately doesn't change culture. Uh, Instead, what he offers as a solution is if his kids were really interested in changing the family culture, they wouldn't whine about children, but instead what they would do is they would go out, learn a new recipe, and make something at home that's actually better than chili. That's really the only way that his kids could change the family culture is by actually creating more culture, creating something different and something that the family enjoys better. And so his point and what he gets into a lot is uh, he kind of takes this concept and talks a lot about cultural artifacts, so art, music, things like that where if we don't like what we see, what it's what we need to do in the church. I mean, it's a great book for, if you're an artist in any form, uh, inspiring of why we need to be creating these things. Once again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take his concept maybe a little bit more fundamentally and fully agree and support his, his points on cultural artifacts, but I would say that it starts 
by creating an actual culture, um, which to me would be life lived amongst real people that live in a certain way. Um, and it's out of that culture that we have cultural artifacts. Um, I don't think that's in opposition to what he's saying, but I might just draw that point out a little bit more explicitly. So hopefully you start to see a theme here of we create communities, we recognize that the communities we create are formative in their very nature, and that we have to be patient and there has to be a willingness for us to, as that community, embrace a series of habits and learn what it means to form one another and to, to walk that out over time so that ultimately we can live under the rule and reign of Christ. One last bonus book. Um, I, think, I think you pronounce it Pierre Bordeaux. Writing his book is called Distinction, A Social Critique of the Judgment of Taste. Just in case anybody worried I was becoming less nerdy over time, um, this book should, should, <laughs> should solve that for you. Uh, I, I'm just now getting into it, so I'm sure this will come up in future ideology episodes. But uh, his main thesis is that everything, like every, taste, you know, the, the type of music we enjoy, the food we eat, the art we admire, these are all a social product. In other words, what he means is that in order to appreciate them, you had to be formed and educated in the right place. And he's looking at this from a class lens. So, you know, if you grew up upper class in the right kind of schools, you're taught to appreciate certain types of music and art that an average person may show up at an art gallery and say, what's that? That's dumb. But there's a grammar to it. There's a language to it that only the right type of distinguished person is able to appreciate. And it's actually a social product and it's a way of signaling your social class. So it's pretty fascinating just his overall thesis is pretty fascinating. But again, it hits this same point, though, to me, is that the community that you're a part of forms you, um, even to the point of what you like and don't like. And it's this reflexive behavior of, I don't like that. Not just being something purely individualistically, but it's actually something that was formed in you, but it was formed in you in such a pervasive way, you don't realize that it was formed in you. And I'm not, I'm not saying there's no individuality in our taste, but I think you could take his point and say there's a whole lot more to our lives that are a product of our formation than probably we are aware of, even as there is some individuality that we all carry as well. So if we tie all these themes in together, the point I'm trying to drive at here is that the way that we live, both the things that we know and consciously think, but I'm actually a lot more interested in the things that we don't ever pause to think about. Charles Taylor calls them unthoughts. These are the things that are reflexive. These are the things that are, are so much in the background, our understanding of the world, that we're not even consciously aware that they're there because it's so pervasive. All of these things are a product of the community that we're a part of and the way that that community has formed us. Therefore, to navigate what it means to be a wholehearted follower of Jesus in a post-Christian world, we absolutely have to have communities to which we are very committed, we meet with consistently, and we embrace a process together of behavior, pattern, and spiritual discipline if we want to live the life of a disciple. So what would be some, some practical implications for the church? Because you know when I, when I look at my life, I think of all the different signals that are coming at me and the different you know, communities and subcommunities I'm a part of, there are some real distinctives that I think the church has is kind of swimming upstream against in terms of the the messaging and the clarity of that messaging, whether it's through media, social media, or even, you know, just the kind of the subcultures that we're all a part of, whether it's, you know, schools our kids are a part of, or the universities we attend, or the sports teams we're part of. So how can the church really create culture and create a space that is formative amidst all these other powerfully shaping influences. 
Yeah, let's get back to what we've said earlier of community and discipline. So I'll start with community. I would challenge everybody that you need to be committed to weekly worship on, you know, I mean, for me, as time has gone on, I am more committed to being at church on Sundays. And it's not because every Sunday I experience some earth shattering moment. It's because I recognize that where I show up is going to form me. And so I want to be showing up in places that I believe are going to form me into the image of Christ, you know, because I think that's important. And I don't, and I don't say any of this in some hyper-legalistic way. I say it more with the reality that you're being going to be formed. And if you want to be formed in the ways of the kingdom, you're going to have to press in and be willing to be inconvenienced and even have obligations so that you're being formed by a community of Christ followers. Secondly, I, I would challenge, you know, whatever, like for our church, it's, it's um, discipleship and life group. For other churches, it could look like something else. But what are, what are the environments that your church creates for discipleship and formation? So if it's small groups, if you're part of a house church network, um, obviously it's that. If it's Sunday school, if it's, you know, there, there's a lot of different ways that this can be worked out in a church. But um, it's not just checking off the box that you went to church on a Sunday, but it's actively involved in the life of the church. And it's also friends and relationships that you do life with organically. So when I think of culture, I think the danger here that I want to avoid is being reductionist, where we reduce it to something. Like, oh, the only thing you really have to do is this element of church. Like, as long as you go to church on Sunday, you're fine. Or as long as you have some kind of small group setting, you're fine. Or as long as you have a group of friends that you do life with, you're fine. I would challenge that whole way of thinking and say, I don't think the question here is reducing it to the bare minimum. I think the question here is, how do we have a very powerful culture that's probably going to involve a lot of time and time commitment that's going to be expressed in a variety of different ways based on the church that you're a part of? So what's tricky on this is what I'm not saying is that one of those ways is more inherently biblical than another. And this is where this is where we struggle a bit, and, this, and I'll get into this some when we get to discipline, is not all of these things are going to be biblical mandates or warrants where you feel like I have to do this because the Bible tells me I have to do this. Instead, what I'm advocating here is recognizing you need to be a part of a church with strong formative power, and there's going to have to be some level of how that's contextualized to that church, which might look different from a church down the street. And so, you know, the bigger question is where has God called you? And wherever God has called you, it's allowing yourself to be fully involved within that community and showing up and being present, being engaged, being active. There's no substitute for time, and so you have to be willing to put in that time so that as a part of that church, you together with others are actually being formed. Obviously, this could be taken a lot of negative directions, and, um, and I'm not saying that, that people need to be you know, frantic with showing up at ministry things, and you always have to be at the church every time the doors are open. I'm not, I'm not talking about this from a rules-based perspective. That's not my point. My point is, if we want to be formed, we need to be present. And there is a, a trend that I'm seeing of people disengaging from those things, not necessarily consciously disengaging from a desire to follow Jesus, but just showing up less in, in those various settings when I think what we actually need is to be actively involved um, so that we are allowing ourselves to be formed by Christian community. And that, that bleeds over into the second part. So it's that same idea with disciplines. And once again, this is where it gets complicated. There's a lot of spiritual disciplines that have historic precedent or are a significant part of a, of a specific church or church tradition that I think are wonderful, but they're not all biblical mandates. So I mentioned earlier fasting, you know, and I, I think you can make an argument that fasting was expected for sure of the disciples and modeled by Jesus and modeled by the disciples. And certainly 
a significant part of the early church. You know, they would fast two days a week. So um, I think you could definitely make a big case for it, but you're also not going to find the verse that says, hear ye brothers, you must fast once a month. That's not in the Bible. So what do you do with that? And I, I notice people wrestling this with this a lot. So if you're part of a church and your church habit is that they do a big Lent fast every year and you feel, man, I don't know that I want to do that. Is that just legalism? Is that, you know, whatever? Um, I would argue that actually part of being a community is jumping into those rhythms. And I'm not a part of a church where our big habit is that we do a long fast during a season of Lent. So we'll express fasting in different ways. So for me being part of the church I'm a part of, then I need to jump in with those. And this needs to be balanced with grace, I, I, I think. And we'll get into this in a um, future episode of where does that kind of thought process end up in legalism? And I do recognize there's danger there. And I think, you know, to maybe jump ahead a little bit, typically that danger happens when we feel like we have to do those things as a means of earning God's approval or as a means of securing our salvation in some way or to, you know, kind of have some kind of meritocracy um, when it comes to our spiritual life. So that that's where that kind of stuff can get really negative. It also can get negative where our emphasis is on those behaviors and we actually lose sight of the love of Jesus, love for one another, the joy that comes in community, experiencing the presence of God. And there's certainly plenty of examples, and I'm sure people listening that many of you have experienced this, where what was once probably a vibrant and rich spiritual discipline got turned into something negative um, because of that reason. So there, there are certainly dangers on this, and all my comments need to have a warning sign affixed to them. But I think that the moment we're in right now is maybe an awareness of the dangers to such an extent that we're shying away from the habits. And this is what I'm pushing back on and challenging is, yes, there are dangers in communities and there are communities that become unhealthy. Yes, there are dangers in um, spiritual disciplines and being part of a group that actively promotes those and actually expects people to participate in those. And that can become unhealthy as well. But both of those things are fundamentally important and the question shouldn't be reducing them to the point where they don't really have formative power anymore. Instead, I believe our emphasis should be on how do we do them in a way that's healthy and current with where God has our community at this point in time. Yeah. And again, this goes all the way back to some of our first episodes that, that it, because we're in the water, so to speak, you know, the fish is the last one to learn about the water. Because we're in it, it's hard to perceive just how hyper-individualistic we've become. The, the irony, though, and this goes all the way back, I think the second or third episode talking about how we are socially formed, the, the, the reality, the truth is that we are all being formed, you know, this bucking tradition or trying to break away from, you know, these, these mainline churches or denominations or, you know, the, kind of the religion of my parents and grandparents in order to become my own person. The reality is that we're, uh, we, we think and look a lot like everybody around us and, and certainly the broader culture and the messaging that's coming at us. And so I think one of the things we're advocating for here is to do the critical thinking, to ask the questions. And uh, because you're going to be formed, to be conscientious and conscious of the forces and the factors that are forming you. Uh, that are forming us and to, as Christ followers, to recognize that the people that we're with, the climates that we are in, both even physically and then certainly socially, culturally, uh, are going to have a massive and profound impact on our development. Uh, and so be, be aware of the fact that we are hyper-individualistic Westerners, but don't be deceived into thinking that, that we are in control uh, to the degree that we think we are in terms of how we're being formed, it, it, it really does require the right environment. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great reminder, and I think background thought for how we interpret this. So let's a uh, couple more thoughts on this um, before we wrap up. One one last dynamic when it comes to the habits and rhythms of a community is that there does need to be a mechanism for those to change over time, and this is where this gets really complicated. There are certain behaviors that are biblically warranted, and they're the clear tradition of the church that I would argue should be expressed in all Christian communities. But then there's other things that are distinctives that certain traditions or certain even individual churches um, feel led and, and feel like are important as part of their church body, and that's the diversity and the beauty of the body of Christ. And so I, I gave an example earlier, uh, but what we could take a, a habit that's pretty consistent is Christians having some form of private devotion. And you're going to see that in almost all traditions, um, recognizing the significance of that. So our church here, it's spending time with God in the morning um, and, and that being a pattern and hopefully leading to a lifestyle of walking with Jesus. Um, other churches, it's it's praying the daily hours and that being a consistent pattern. And so there's, there's different ways to express that that are based upon that church. So I, I would start by just saying, what church am I in and what's that habit and how do I jump in on that? But I also, you know, as an individual believer, I think it is great to learn and even benefit from ways other Christians and other traditions have done it. And I personally found that to be really rich. The challenge comes in of what if there's a, a way of doing it, something like that, that we perceive, you know, just with how culture changes over time, maybe it needs to be adjusted, not as an accommodation to culture, um, but just a recognition that the environment's different and the way that our spiritual disciplines need to be expressed may need to look different. So I'll give an example about 100, 150 years ago, when it came to alcohol, you know, there were the way that liquor was being distilled and ultimately there was a pretty severe crisis that was affecting a lot of poor Americans. So a lot of this wasn't actually about alcohol, but it was actually about alcohol's impact on families, on poverty, and a lot of things like that that led to both in the church this complete prohibition on drinking in any way. And it was actually uh, Welch was a Methodist and his big claim to fame was he was able to make communion um, non-alcoholic. That was like his whole deal. And that's how we got grape juice was invented um, to avoid having alcohol in the church because the church was trying to just take it out entirely, in certain, at least in certain expressions of the body of Christ. And then that was being mirrored in the church's social activism. I think if you actually could go back at that point in time, a lot of that probably made sense by what was happening socially. Now, the reality is, as many people know, Jesus drank and wine is a part of communion that's happened historically. And, you know, this is kind of a abnormal cultural expression at a particular point in time that was probably outside the mainstream of what Christianity has been. So now, you know, hundred something years later, um, that kind of thinking is a lot more rare. I would imagine probably most people listening to this podcast wouldn't hold the position that for any Christian anywhere to have any form of alcohol is wrong. However, there was a point in time in the not so distant future where that actually was a pretty significant part of what churches would teach. So what do you do with something like that that's not tied to anything biblically, and it kind of makes sense historically, how do you reframe that? Well, there is a lot in Scripture about drunkenness. There is a lot that I think you can tie in on um, something like alcohol's impact. So what we have to do then is say, if we're, if we're not saying that everyone has to be a teetotaler, how do we responsibly handle something like alcohol? What kind of accountability needs to be there? What kind of patterns of behavior need to be there so that that doesn't lead people in a community down a destructive path? I'm not making a judgment one way or another on the issue of alcohol as much as to express different churches might elect to do that different ways. And, you know, you might be a part of one church that's really strong in how they handle it, and another church might be different. And so that's going to have to change over time. So, you know, there, there are a degree of patterns and habits within the community that do need to change and do need to adapt. 
And that's not necessarily a bad thing. What concerns me is what you mentioned earlier, Mick, is how individualistic we are, where increasingly what I see people doing is not having much regard for the way their community is handling it, and they're entirely handling it on their own. And the idea is, well, it's not in the Bible, therefore I don't need to worry about that. I would actually make the argument that first and foremost, absolutely, we need to look to Scripture, and that doesn't change by the grace of God. Um, He has given us Scripture as an anchor point, and we do have the witness of the undivided church. So those things do provide a plumb line for us that resolve a lot of issues, and we've talked about many of those on this podcast. But then there's other things that are a little stickier of how these get expressed in daily life. And and that's going to then need to be worked out in the context of church community. And so it's not just an issue of what can I intellectually defend, but I think we also need to ask the question, how does the community that God has called me to seek to live this out at this particular time in history? And depending on what church you're in, that actually might look a little bit different. That's not a bad thing, though. Like, I think that's actually pretty healthy because just like different families choose to have different family rhythms, they're seeking to express the same thing. Healthy family, love for one another, spiritual growth, healthy boundaries. And they, they choose to do those in different ways. And they're not necessarily contradictory. They're just different. And that's a beautiful thing. So the point is not that we need to pick those apart or reduce them down to the most common denominator. I think the point from my perspective would be we need to be clear which family God's called us to and then embrace that, embrace the rhythms of that family, um, speaking of church at this point, and recognize that that's actually going to be really important for us so that we are able to be formed into the image of Christ together in community by the power of the Holy Spirit and ultimately have a way to witness to a post-Christian secular surrounding culture. You know, and just one last thought to wrap up that to be in relationship, and again, this is a theme that keeps coming up over and over and over again, to be in relationship requires some sort of modification of my thinking and my behaviors. You can't have people who are pure individuals with no regard for the people around them. That should be self-evident. But again, we bring this individualistic approach to life uh, to our communities often and expect the community to adapt to us as opposed to us adapting to the broader community. It's not a very popular kind of thought or message today, but it's a critical one. And it's one that is easily substantiated in the scriptures. Yeah, it's such a good point. You know, I think there's, it's not popular today is the, is the message. I, you know, hopefully it goes without saying stuff like this could be taken in a wrong direction and taken too far. And there have been churches and whole Christian traditions that I believe have gone too far with this, it would be my judgment that that's, though it is a real concern, and there may be some people out there where that's actually something you need to be aware of as a concern, I would argue that the vast majority of Christians, at least in the United States, have um, a concern on the other side, where we've allowed our hyper-individualism to shape us too much to where we've shied away too far the other direction. And so like all things in life, there needs to be nuance and balance and awareness of where we're coming from. But I I believe because this is a less popular minority position, it needs to at least be represented for us as we understand what does church look like, what does church involvement look like, and what are the disciplines and habits that we need so that we can be formed into the image of Christ. So may we not abandon our own meeting together, as is the habit of some, but may we encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near, to quote Hebrews 10.25. Hopefully this content has been encouraging to you today. As always, thank you for your ongoing listenership, and we will catch you next week on Ideology. Ideology.